Hey everyone, Chris here. You probably know me as the cooler, more insightful half of the Listen Closely with John and Chris podcast. We have a quick favor to ask of you. If you have a moment and you could take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast app you listen on, we would be extremely grateful. Ratings and reviews help keep us on the charts for the various podcast apps, which allows us to get more sponsors, which hopefully allows us to improve both the content and listening experience of Listen Closely. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Listen Closely with John and Chris. Uh, It's 2021 and I am still here out on the West Coast. I am Chris. With me as always back on the East Coast, my friend John. John, how are you? Happy 2021. Cheers, fuckface. Uh, I'm well. How are you? Happy <laughs> Happy New Year to you. <laughs> happy New Year. Uh, 2021, I think we're all pretty happy to see 2020 in the rearview mirror. I doubt that it will be one that we'll look back on with, with a whole lot of nostalgia, but you never know. And it had its moments. I mean, can we agree? We, we launched Listen Closely with John and Chris in sure. early 2020. That was significant. And that was, I, that was what, significant. March, April. Yeah, on a personal level, on a on a national level, I think. Uh, oh, national, not, not international level. That's international. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's let's. Yeah, I think it's been a pretty a pretty even balance when you look at it that way. Okay, then. <laughs> this podcast is obviously about music, but as you've often pointed out, it's it's just as much about nostalgia. Correct. There's such a link between music and nostalgia. There's such a, a mental, psychological link, I think, between when you hear a song and both the physical place you are and the mental place you are. And probably not surprisingly for us, having grown up in the 80s and the 90s, most of our episodes have been about music from that era. Because I think that's, I mean, we can talk about whether or not we think that era of music is generally better than other eras, but... Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're not about to fess up to crying to hearing um, Dan Fogelberg's same old Lane Zion uh, last oh, week. Oh, right? no, I'll gladly fess up to that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that is a, just a tremendous tour de force of a song. But no, but... Such a in the record store. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Uh, no, but what I'm saying is that I think if we're really being honest, part of the reason that we gravitate towards 80s and 90s music a lot is because that's when we grew up. That's, you know, when I got Actum Baby, I was like, we were both on the verge of becoming fully formed humans. And that stuff impacts you. <laughs> Speak for yourself, but yes. I know. <laughs> so in part because of that, I mean, we've, I think the most current episode we've done is uh, The Killers from 2004. And that is correct. Prior to that, I, th- I think our most contemporary episode is by a man who was old enough to be receiving social security payments when he made it, Leonard Cohen. That's right. Uh, but we're not these curmudgeonly old dudes, okay boomers who, you know, these get off my lawn with your newfangled music. We, we can get current, John. And today, we're going to do it. We are. We are. We are. We're going. Uh, sh- shall I do the honors? Yeah, please, please do. Yeah, we are, uh, wow, talk about being contemporary after that beautiful, epic, and rather long-winded introduction you just gave. <laughs> uh, we finally embrace the last decade 
So we're actually, we're going back uh, to 2014 because that's about as contemporary as I think we can get. But listen, that's contemporary enough. That's about seven years ago. And in fact, we're going to March of 2014. The album is Lost in the Dream. The band is The War on Drugs. Yes, yes. And it's not lost on me that our most contemporary album is from a band that has a very 80s nostalgic name. uh, Exactly. And also very... 80s nostalgic sound but very much it's influenced by the 80s sound but they very much do their their own thing with it and i think have a very uh, contemporary you know modern of the moment sound would you agree i would and i think that's uh i have to say that unlike a lot of the albums we've focused on in this podcast where i've kind of um, brought those albums to your attention over the years this is one that actually you brought to my attention uh, shortly right. after out in 2014. I had never even heard of the band because I'm, you know, apparently living under a rock in, in 2014. But uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, when I first heard about the band by you, my first reaction was, well, what a stupid name for a band. But then <laughs> when you listen to them and when you lis- listen closely, there, I said it. Sure. it. It all makes sense because, yeah, it, it the, the name of the band is a very 80s sounding name. But here's a band that sounds incredibly modern, but who aren't afraid to wear their influences very much on their plaid flannel sleeves. <laughs> uh, and those influences are largely from the 1980s. And uh, hence the name of the band making complete sense. So, yeah, I think... Uh, Oh, listen, I mean, when, when you listen to this album, I hear so many of the artists, Chris, that we grew up listening to. Yeah, who and, specifically do you, uh, do you hear? Well, you know, a, a lot of the ones that we've profiled on this podcast. Thematically, the songs are similar to those of Bruce Springsteen, I totally. think. Totally. The guitar on several of the songs calls to mind vintage Lindsey Buckingham and Fleetwood hmm. Mac. Interesting. Uh, there's an element of dire straits, I think, in the production and the sonics, if you will. Sure, sure. Uh, but the beauty of it is, okay, so you have all this sort of mainstream, early 80s rock sound, right? Springsteen, hint of, of dire straits, hint of Lindsey Buckingham, Fleetwood Mac. But then it's dressed up in this progressive sound and style that has shades of 80s, new wave, and alternative to it. I hear a lot of new order when I listen to, to this mm. band and this album in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can hear that. And it's very, it's very strange to think, I mean, when I first heard them, that was the two things that I thought were 80s New Wave, Progressive, and Springsteen, which are two very diametrically opposed things in a way. I mean, Springsteen, you know, is these more guitar ballads, you know, very America, Heartland kind of sound. But, uh, but they really mix together beautifully uh, in the War on Drugs sound. It's, it's this kind of synth-heavy, heavily produced um, overall sound, but it has these lyrics and these melodies that are just incredibly kind of simple and beautiful and, and can tell some really powerful and heart-wrenching stories. They, I mean, there's heart-wrenching, I really think, is the, the best word to describe the, the stories that are told. There's a lot of longing in the songs. Um, I just love how rich and how deep this album is. I think when you compare this album, when you compare these guys 
to the other acts and albums that were considered modern rock of, say, 2013, 2014, 2015, that, that last decade. I'm talking about such mediocrity as you know, Fall Out Boy, Lord, Hosier, Mumford & Sons, Panic at the Disco, 21 Pilots, Imagine Dragons. We're on drugs, and this album is so much more rich, graceful, refined. And I think, Chris, it's ultimately an infinitely more satisfying listening experience than anything else that was coming out right around that time. Yeah, I mean, this is one that just kind of stopped me in my tracks when I first heard it and had one of those, what is this uh, moments? It, it really is extremely atmospheric, really kind of teleports you to a, just a different state of mind, I think. And, and a lot's been written about the front man, Adam Grandesil's uh, issues with depression and anxiety and how this, is, this album is sort of a, a meditation on that. And, and I think, you know, all that's true and it certainly comes out in the album, but I think it's a little, it's a little reductive because I, I think whether, you're, whether you've been through depression or anxiety or, or any, anything like that, I mean, there's just something that's really, I think, relatable in a lot of these songs. It's, it's just about like you said, longing, loss, suffering, but there's, there's moments of hope in there too. I, I think it's, it's just a really emotionally complex album. There's faint glimmers of hope. There's, there's that far off distant shimmering, slightly shimmering light at the end of the tunnel, I think uh, you see. And uh, I think you're right. And I don't know, but I've always felt that certain albums are best appreciated during specific times of the year. Mm. And we here with this podcast are cognizant of that when I'm scheduling the albums that we discuss in the podcast and when we choose to discuss them. I mean, case in point, Chris, gearing up for July 4th weekend last summer, we talked about Boss Skaggs, Silk Degrees, which is this, you know, soulful, feel-good uh, summer album. Right. Uh, and then heading into, uh, or just after Labor Day weekend, rather, we talked about Hotel California by the Eagles, um, which is really this, this meditation, if you will, on uh, change of season, change of life, end of easy breezy times. Yeah. It just makes sense. And this album is, in my opinion, the perfect soundtrack to the dead of winter. Where, you know, yes, the days are getting a little bit longer, ever so slightly, but it's still cold. It's still gray. Uh, but that, that slight light at the end of the tunnel that I mentioned a few moments ago is what you hope to see late March, early April. Yeah, I think that's true. I, this album also, for whatever reason, it really reminds me of a particular time of day. This album is very like twilight to me. Like the yes. sun has gone down. It's I think because it is very dreamlike with all the synth, um, it kind of has that dreamy feel to it. A mixing of night and day, and yeah, you know. And they're they're interesting. I mean, they came on the scene I think in two thousand eight, and they did an album with uh, Kurt Vile, uh, sort of the co-front man, and he went off and did his own thing. And they they released another album or two that. You know, they started to get a little bigger, I think, in the indie scene, but they still re weren't really well known in, in popular circles at all. Um, I think this album in 2014 kind of started to really put them on the map uh, more broadly. And they would go on. Uh, their next album, I mean, they won a, they won a Grammy for best, uh, 
best right. rock album, even though I think Lost in the Dream is probably the better album. But what, uh, what did the critics think of this one? The critical reception was quite enthusiastic, quite good. According to Metacritic, Lost in the Dream was the most critically acclaimed album of 2014, as it appeared on no less than 54 critics' year-end best of lists and was number one on 13 of those 54 lists. Um, Spin gave it a 9 out of 10. Rolling Stone gave it 3 out of 5 stars. Screw them. Uh, Consequence of Sound named it their album of the year. But I think it was Pitchfork uh, that had the most spot-on assessment of the album. They proclaimed Lost in the Dream as the band's most lustrous, intricately detailed, and beautifully rendered record to date, and that the album is loaded with songs whose greatness is revealed slowly, where the simplest, most understated chord change can blow a track wide open and elevate it from simply pretty to absolutely devastating. And this is the line that I think uh, really is perfect summary of the album. And this again is from Pitchfork. Lost in the Dream is unapologetic in its dad rock reverence. <laughs> it's dad rock for people who are too fucked up and broken to even think of having kids. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That, that whole review of, that you just read from them is, is so spot on too with the uh, you know, one little subtle change and, and a song just goes down a completely different road. And that's what's amazing about the album is, is that it's just chock full of surprises yeah. in that respect. Yeah. And I think, you know, the album, it's very synth heavy, right? But uh, in a way that's, we've talked a little bit about synth before with like some of Dire Straits stuff. Um, you know, it gets a bad name, the synthesizer, but uh, when done right, it cre create this just incredible atmospheric uh, backdrop. And I think that's what happens on this album. I would have to agree. Yeah. Now, what, uh, let's move on to the picks here. Mm. What, what did you come up with for your nadir? What, what doesn't quite work for you? Oh, this was easy for me, Chris. Uh, I went with track number seven, The Haunting Idol. Um, if I were to have a complaint about this beautiful album, it's that it can occasionally get caught up in its own moodiness and overly atmospheric sound. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think this groggy, seemingly Zolpidem-induced three-and-a-half-minute instrumental just doesn't do it for me. I think it threatens to make the album veer off course a bit, and I think they'd have been better either having it be a shorter, like maybe 90-second instrumental track, or just having left it off the album altogether. I don't think there was any need to have this this uh, instrumental on the album, in my opinion. I like The Haunting Idol. I, yeah? I do. I don't... Uh, on paper, it shouldn't work, but... Um, it doesn't. <laughs> no, I think it really does. I mean, I think it's... Because it's not... I mean, there's a lot going on in that three minutes. It's not just sort of... a. Uh, dreamy backdrop it's 
they're doing a lot of, uh, there's a lot of kind of movements in that three minutes, I feel like. I don't know, I, I agree that like, if you're, if you're making an album, it's generally not a good idea to have like a three and a half minute instrumental dropped in the middle of it. But to me, this one just works. It's kind of dark and screeching at times. And, um, and I like the way it leads into the next song. Yeah, uh, we can agree to disagree. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I, I do have kind of my my nadir is kind of similar, I think. Unless you have more to to say. No, about that's that. that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so mine, I didn't pick a song, but to me, the low point is in a couple spots, the outros, if you will, mm. um, and this kind of gets to your point where. Yes, you know, this album, it is very dreamy and it does have kind of this meandering through your own mind sort of feel to it sometimes, uh, which is going to result in some some longer songs with some, you know, maybe extended instrumental parts. But there's, there's just certain parts like the song Disappearing, um, where basically the last, you know, I don't know, the last three minutes is just kind of instrumental outro. Um, sure. Even the first track, Under the Pressure, which I love, that ends up being like a, what is it, seven or eight minute long song. And I'm not saying cut it down to three and a half minutes and you know, do that. I'm just saying, I think there's a few songs in here where you can probably take a minute off the end where they, they veer into being a little self-indulgent. There's a few where I, as great as this album is, where I get the, the feeling like, all right, let's go on to the next song now. I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good assessment. I don't, I don't disagree with you on that. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the sleeper moment. This is the one that kind of sneaks up on you, or it can be a song that, you know, sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. What'd you go with? Well, after you uh, really just crusaded against outros, um, I feel um, a little awkward uh, revealing my sleeper here. I don't know if but, I can say uh, that's a little strong. Well, okay, never mind then. <laughs> but I, I, I was, there were a few that I was torn between. But in the end, uh, I went with track number six, Eyes to the Wind. Ooh. Uh, it's this beautiful song that's sandwiched smack dab in the middle of the album. And there's a lot going on in this song you have the very obvious Springsteen influence with that, especially with that sax solo at the outro, yeah. uh, which I absolutely love. And I think it's a cool solo in that it's very Clarence Clemens-esque, mm. but less Rosalito or Bobby Jean and more Secret Garden. Yeah, uh, mm. it's, it's tender, it's wistful. Um, it's almost, in some regards, I see it as like a bit of an ode. To, to Clarence Clemens, who had, I think, passed on maybe a year or two before this album uh, was, was recorded. So who knows? And, um, you know, we spoke about the influence of classic rock musicians on this band and on this album. And if you listen closely mm -hmm. uh, to the piano toward the very beginning of, of Eyes to the Wind, it could be just me, but I think it's very reminiscent of Bob Seger's Against the Wind. So, mm -hmm. you know, eyes to the wind, against 
the wind. I don't know, but you see where I'm going with this. Um, you know, fortunately, the, the song sounds nothing like Wind Beneath My Wings or Ride Like the Wind. But, <laughs> but I, I pick up on a definite subtle or maybe not so subtle nod to Bob Seger. Interesting. Yeah, I, I could see that. I also feel like the, the song is very Bob Dylan to me. Oh, definitely. The vocal delivery is total Bob Dylan. Total, yeah. Yeah, he kind of, I feel like he does that. Sometimes he slips into uh, different vocal styles. And this one, it, yeah, it gets into that, that Dylan-esque voice. Um, yeah, great song. I really, I really love this one. While we're on the topic of Dylan, too, I, I do want to say this because I did pick up on this, particularly with this song and, and parts of this album. It's a very specific era of Bob Dylan. And I, the late 80s Dylan, there was a great Dylan album called Oh Mercy. And I think it's one of Dylan's best. And it was produced by Daniel Lanois, who, of course, we've discussed before. Hmm. Uh, and Lenoir's a master at creating this moody, atmospheric sound. And when I listen to parts of this album, uh, Lost in the Dream, but particularly when I listen to Eyes to the Wind, it made, immediately made me also think of, of Bob Dylan. The Interesting, yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I think it's also, they do a great job on this album of kind of you know, when there are these long, uh, more indulgent musical interludes, instrumental interludes, I should say, they break it up. So like this comes between disappearing and the haunting idol. Um, and I think this has just such a great melody to it. Um, and it kind of has that, you know, a bit of a, I wouldn't say a driving beat to it, but uh, it's less just atmospheric to me there's a little more to hold on to. And I think it's, it's well-placed in between those two songs. I would have to agree. But now what did you choose as your sleeper? So this was interesting on this album because although it got a lot of critical acclaim, I, I feel like, you know, there weren't like many billboard top hits on this album, if any, you know, I, I think, you know, there may be one song that cracked like the top 30. Um, so it was a pretty wide open field in terms of sleepers, I think. Um, and to me, the one that's always jumped out uh, is Burning, uh, which is the one that comes right yeah. after Haunting Idol. This one to me is another one that's just classic Springsteen um, and, and classic Roy Batan type keyboards uh, from the E Street Band. That's true. You know, it has this great keyboard intro and the lyrics are, I mean, I could totally hear Springsteen singing this. On a drive, I'm taking back roads high against where the rivers are flowing. I didn't think that our love had grown. You had me dead to rights. Hey, I'm trying to get some rest to keep on moving. Um, it's very Springsteen. And I just think it's such a great catchy tune. Um, yeah, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. Incredible song. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that Springsteen influence uh, is so evident on that song, as it is throughout the album. But I think Burning is just incredible. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Burning was the very first song that you had introduced me to on this album. I think, um, yeah, I think it was one of two. Yeah. Um, 
and the second I think burning and, and red eyes i think yeah the first two. yeah yeah um great song um now what i'm very curious to see where you went with your zenith what's your well you know i'm a i'm a fan of the great segue and um yeah we're not going to have one, although we almost did, because uh, for a while, Burning was, in fact, uh, my zenith, just because I absolutely love that song. Um, in fact, my mind was pretty much made up that it would be Burning, mm. and that uh, my zenith, which I'm about to reveal, was actually going to be my sleeper. But I completely changed course, um, not quite 24 hours ago. And uh, I really think that with this album, uh, The War on Drugs pulled uh, Vanessa Williams on us. And I think they went and saved the best for last. <laughs> and um, I think the album's closing track, In Reverse, is the best song on the album. Uh, wow. I okay. really, really do. If you can hang in there for the first 90 seconds or so, which, uh, you know, it's more of that instrumental moodiness. Uh, the song is really beautiful when it finally kicks in. And I think it's the perfect way to end the album. Uh, it's, it's sort of like the perfect catch-all for the album, that it's musically and lyrically filled with concern, longing, occasional faint glimmers of hope. And, man, the lyrics to the song are just incredible. Um, sometimes I wait for the cold wind to blow as I struggle with myself right now, as I let her darkness in. But I don't mind chasing you through the back ways for the keys. It evaporates and fades like a grand parade. And I don't mind you disappearing when I know you can be found, when you're living on the dark side of the street. I mean, that's like yeah. that's haunting, beautiful, and you know, dark side of the street. I mean, who's that? That's Springsteen uh, lyricism yeah. right there. Yeah. This is my favorite song in the album. It's a great one, and you're right. It is. I think it's the perfect, the perfect way to end it because it's got all of that, all of that pain and anguish. But it does, you know, the, especially the last minute or two of that song. That's a great outro to me. I mean, it, it because it's kind of hopeful. There's like a ray of light in there, like you were saying at the beginning of the, uh, of the of our whole discussion. That you know, it's not like the ray of light is right here upon you but you can kind of you can kind of see it and you can kind of hear it exactly it's it's there somewhere off in the distance somewhere yeah oh, we, now we got a Bette Midler uh Vanessa Williams and Bette Midler's in oh. from a distance god this has to stop yeah. yeah if you start pulling out any share between now and the end of this episode <laughs> I'm I'm never hosting another one of these podcasts with you <laughs> unless it's Jesse James that was a pretty cool song I love that song. Um, yeah, that is really. Yeah, well, that that's a great choice. That's a great choice. I, I really. Thank you. Yeah, I, I that song really spoke to me. Uh, listening to this album uh, over the course of the last week, it really, really spoke to me. It moved me even. I just think it's a it's a beautiful, um, perfect song, perfect way to end the album. But there, there's something really. Go. There's something. Sorry. There's something really special too when you can get. You know, a good closing song, it's almost like in baseball with a, you know, not every relief pitcher can be a good closer, right? Like, there's certain songs that when you get the right closing song on an album, it can just be kind of magic. 
right? Usually like the last song or the last two songs on most albums are throwaway. Exactly. Exactly. But no, not the war on drugs and not lost in the dream. This is a, this album is unpredictable and that's the, that's one of the joys of it. But now I want to know what your Zenith is. Uh, so this, uh, the first, my first introduction to war on drugs in 2014, uh, I was watching the show, the AMC show, Halt and Catch Fire, uh, which is about, you know, sort of loosely based on like the Apple, Microsoft race to build, uh, you know, the, the first personal computers. And, um, and the end of this one episode, th this group of people who've been working on one of these computers is about to go off to this tech show to, to display it. And, uh, and they all, they've sold one of the characters Porsche to like pay for this. And they hop in this old station wagon and they pull out and they they drive off down the street kind of into the sunset. And this song comes on playing and it's got this driving synth beat, this amazing guitar. And I just like, I was blown away. And I said, what is that song? And I don't know if I didn't know about Shazam at the time, but uh, I didn't Shazam. And instead I was, I just, it had these lyrics that were almost inscrutable. Like you couldn't really understand what the guy was saying. And I was just, I just kept rewinding and rewinding and trying to get a little piece of the lyrics so that I could Google it and find out. And finally I get come and see where I witness everything on my knees, beat it down to get to my soul. Red eyes. Um, Amazing. Blew me away the first time I heard it. And that's what got me interested in the war on drugs. Um, the and so fitting for Halt and Catch Fire, which, correct me if I'm wrong, took place in the 1980s. I never watched it, but I knew of it. Exactly. And that's when I, you know, when I heard it, I was like, is this, a, is this sort of a forgotten 80s song that I just never, never heard? Is this something new? I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is perfect. It, this song, it just... It has this amazing pacing to it and this sort of building, 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 and then climaxing and then kind of starting over. And um, it's just, it's relentless, but uh, you know, it's sort of a sentimental favorite too, because it was how I got to know the war on drugs. But uh, to me, it just never gets old. It's and, an incredible song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what a one, two combo. I mean, to start with under the pressure and then, go into this as your second track. I mean, it's a good like 12 or 13 minutes of, uh, of just ecstasy at the beginning of this album. The whole first half of the, half of the album uh, really is consistent, I think. Um, it, yeah. You know, if it, you know, my thoughts, I don't love Haunting Idol. So it, it falls off a little bit at that point. But no, I think you're right. You got that one-two punch and then that segues into Suffering ocean uh in between the waves disappearing and then eyes to the wind i mean if this were an lp that's uh that's pretty much perfect side a yeah yeah absolutely um so what you know that kind of let's if we segue into our personal moments here that's kind of my personal moment you know having heard red eyes the first time what about you any uh either pop culture references or, or personal memories with this album let me just say that was a really good segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. One day I'll be thinking if I could turn back time and go back to that segue. Oh, no. Yeah. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Because um, after all the starts and stops that we do when we record this <laughs> podcast. It's... Oh, shit. All right. Um, if we were, would you, do you feel like you're the Sonny or the share of this podcast duo? Seriously? I don't know. And that's really disturbing that you even Yeah. That. All right, let's move on. What's your, what I mean, you I think like the Satara share might be the better, uh, the better thing. And oh, in that case, I'm, I'm totally Satara. Oh, please. I'm, all right. Well, let's, let's move on here. God. I've got to do um, a Chicago album someday, by the way. No, it's it's coming. Uh, we we are going to do a Chicago album. It's it's in the works for uh, season four, season five. Sit tight, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, don't you worry. Anyway, uh, particular memories or pop culture references. Actually, for me, it was just last weekend, um, where I had a moment with this album. I, I was listening to the album, making some notes for this episode, and out of nowhere, it started snowing. I mean, they said that. You know, we might have gotten a little flurry here or there, but it really started to come down. And it was this big, beautiful snow, these big flakes. Um, and in my condo, as you know, Chris, I have these, these rather large windows just off the kitchen that um, overlook the, the courtyard, my condominium complex. And I was sitting at the table uh, overlooking the windows, overlooking the courtyard, listening to the album, and eyes to the wind was playing and uh it was really this beautiful winter moment uh this kind of calming uh introspective moment if you will and uh you know i i'm not a huge winter fan but um when you have a moment like that there's just that beautiful snowfall and you're comfortable and cozy in the warmth of your own home and you have this beautiful music playing it can really be quite nice yeah that's oh man that's beautiful. That's, that's one of the ways that, uh, you know, we talked about nostalgia before and music can get so hooked into these moments. Uh, exactly. It's beautiful. Um, how well do you think this album represents the zeitgeist of 2014? Well, who gives a shit? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I mean, really? Well, no, no, I say that because what the hell was the cultural zeitgeist of 2014, right? Like, was it, the, the disappearing Malaysian Airlines flight, Ferguson, that, that stupid selfie that Ellen took at the Oscars with Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, and Meryl Streep. I think Spacey was in that selfie, too. Um, it, what, what I'm saying is I don't think 2014 really had a significant cultural zeitgeist. And if it did, I don't think it was all that special. But it should be honored to have this amazing album mentioned in the same breath as it. So mm. I, I don't know if that really answers the, the question, but I just, I don't know what the 2014 cultural zeitgeist was, even though I lived it. Yeah. But whatever it was, I think this album's better than it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think it, it is harder with the newer albums. I mean, the zeitgeist often I think emerges you know, well after the fact. Um, to me, to me, one thing it does capture, though, uh, in that in that era, I mean, it's funny to look back now when 
2020 sucked so bad, but there was a lot of angst in the early 2000s. Um, and, and some of it rightfully so. I mean, listen, we've talked about 9-11 and the wars that created and, you know, the financial crisis and all that stuff. But uh, to me, you know, when you compare it to other, other decades, the early 2010s were certainly not, I think it's overblown a little, but I think there was this, this sense of longing and nostalgia for uh, times like the 80s and 90s, uh, especially sure. among young people who grew up in those times. And so I think this is kind of reflective in that it, it has these callbacks to that era, but I, I do think it really, instead of getting mired in nostalgia for those times, it really just uses them as influences and kind of takes it onto its own thing. Uh, if that makes any sense. It uh, does. It does. Yeah. Do you, do you think this is a perfect album? I mean, the album is not perfect in the same sense that some of the other albums I have proclaimed perfect on this podcast are. In other words, I don't know, Dire Straits making movies, Radiohead the Bends, Hotel California, Octung Baby. Those are a different sort of perfect. Those are a more timeless sort of per perfection. But getting back to you know, what you were just saying a moment ago and what I said a moment before that uh, regarding 2014, I think this album is as close to perfection as you were likely to find in 2014. And you know, maybe that's not saying much because this was, after all, the year that had songs like Happy by Pharrell Williams and <laughs> All About the Bass by Megan Trainer, <laughs> topping the charts. Yeah. Um, but this is likely the best rock album of the second decade of the 21st century that I've heard. Wow. Yeah. You know, well, I, what's better? Songs of Experience? I mean, come on. Oh, geez. No, I mean, I, th I think I would agree with that. I was just thinking of that, you know, earlier this morning. I don't, yeah, I can't think of one. I really can't. I mean, to me, it is perfect. I, and maybe it's because I, I like The Haunting Idol, and so I don't have that kind of blemish on it in my view. But that's a, that's a very minor blemish. That wouldn't yeah. uh, strip the perfect title away from this album uh, I, for me. I see. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's one where you, you put it on and you, you don't need to hit skip once or pick up the needle or whatever the hell you do these days. And, and by the end of it, your mind is kind of blown. Um, you, you get lost in it, lost in the dream. You do. I mean, it's a perfectly named album um, because you really, you really are sort of lost in this uh, dreamy landscape. Really well, whether it's perfect or not, it's, I think, wow. I mean, it's interesting. We both agree that, that this is probably the best album of the last decade. Um, well, it's the best one that I've heard. And sure, full sure. disclosure, I haven't heard a whole lot. Um, <laughs> And Although probably, I hear that that new Taylor Swift album is really damn good, but whatever. T Swizzle has her moments. Let's be honest. She, she does. I mean, yeah. in this episode, we've talked about Vanessa Williams, Cher, Bette Midler, and Taylor Swift. I mean, really. Yeah, this is a kinder, gentler 2021. Um, oh, God help us. <laughs> but we, we made it to 2021, and that's the important thing. And this is an outstanding album. 
that I think our listeners really need to go out and listen to as soon as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, John, this has been fun kicking off the new year. And, Absolutely. Uh, Can we make a little programming note that uh, there are now just two more episodes remaining in season two of Listen Closely with John and Chris. So stay tuned. We have two real exciting episodes coming up. Uh, and then we take a little, uh, little hiatus for about a month. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're going to be real good. Um, and as always, you can find us on Twitter at podcast closely or Instagram at listen closely dot podcast. Uh, let us know what you think. And, uh, you know, if you have a moment and you can please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen on, we would greatly appreciate it. We really right. would. I think that's it, John. That is it. All right. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon. Listen Closely with John and Chris is executive produced by John DiBenedictus, written by Chris Charmiello and John DiBenedictus, sound engineering and editing, Chris Charmiello, Technical consultant, Ivo Kulishko. Management, Kyle A. Mulvey and Associates. Hair and makeup, Salon de Stronzo. Listen Closely with John and Chris is produced using the Anchor podcasting platform.